Good evening. Good to be together tonight. Appreciate this time that we've been able to spend in worship, not only this morning, but also coming back together tonight. Appreciate Seth for leading us in singing, getting us started right on time. I guess he figured my sermon's going to be a little bit longer tonight. Well, it's not going to be too long, Seth. I have an extra four minutes now, so I'm thankful for that. We're going to be in Mark, the eighth chapter. If you want to go ahead and turn there with me, Mark chapter eight. We're going to continue our study of the Gospel of Mark tonight by actually closing out Mark chapter 8. We're halfway through the book, Mark chapter 8, looking at verses 34 through 38. Have you ever thought about what it means to be a disciple? Back in the first century world, Jewish rabbis, would, Jewish teachers would take in disciples, students. Every single day, those students would sit at their teacher's feet. Every single day, those, those disciples would spend every waking moment with their rabbis, with their teachers, in order to become like them. In order to learn from their teaching. In order to live in the way that their teacher lived. It's like what Jesus says. He talks about the first century idea of discipleship in Luke chapter 6 and verse number 40. He really lays down two principles of discipleship. First, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher. One thing that is understood whenever you look at how discipleship is set up, the teacher is always going to be greater. The teacher is always going to be superior and the disciple is always going to be inferior. He's always going to be lesser. He's going to be below his teacher. A disciple's not above his teacher. But then here's the goal of discipleship. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. The goal of discipleship is for the disciple to become like the rabbi. The disciple, the student, the pupil to become like the teacher, not just in some ways, but in every way. Whenever we look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, when we think about that structure of discipleship in the first century world, especially in the Jewish context, isn't that who we want to be when we think about Jesus? When we think about the Lord, when we think about our Christ, our Messiah, don't we want to be His disciples? Don't we want to be those who spend time sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to His teaching? Don't we want to realize that Jesus is greater than we are and as a result of that, to follow in His footsteps? As disciples of Jesus, we want to be like Jesus. We want to imitate Jesus, not just in some ways, but in every way. We want to think how He thought. We want to talk how He talked. We want to live in the way that He lived. We want to follow in the footsteps and the pattern that He has left behind for us in the example of His perfect life. As Christians, one of the things that we should want to be, one of the ways that we should want to identify ourselves is being disciples of Jesus. I believe that this text helps us to do that. When we look at the end of Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 38, Jesus is talking to us about being His disciple. Things that we need to do. Things that we need to realize in order to live our lives as disciples of Jesus. So tonight, let's not only notice what Jesus has to say about discipleship, but let's think about ourselves. Let's think about the way that we choose to live. Let's think about the kind of lifestyles that we partake in every single day. Are we living as disciples of Jesus? Are we following in His footsteps, imitating Him in everything that we do? What does it take 
to be a disciple of Jesus. Well, I think we need to begin with this first principle that comes from the very first part of Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. The fact, the principle that discipleship is difficult. Discipleship is not easy. At times, discipleship can be something that is very challenging. As we read just a moment ago in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus calls the crowd to Himself with His disciples and He began to teach them. I believe He's teaching them about discipleship and about what discipleship looks like. Notice the first few words there in red that He says to the crowd. He says, if anyone would come after Me. In other words, Jesus says, here's the direction that I'm going. Here's the path that I'm walking down. Here's the direction that I'm traveling. And if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow after me, then here are some things that you need to do. Here are some things that you need to recognize. But as we look at those first few words, if you desire, if you want to come after me, what direction is Jesus going? When you look at Mark chapter 8, what kind of path is Jesus walking down? He's saying if we want to come after Him, come after Him where? What direction is Jesus traveling in Mark the 8th chapter? What kind of path is He walking down? Well, you go back just a few verses to Mark chapter 8 and verse 29. We talked about this last week where Simon Peter, speaking on behalf of the rest of the apostles, confessed Jesus to be the Christ. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And he answered saying, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. But as we said last week, the disciples don't understand that fully yet. They don't understand that completely yet. Whenever Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, he's picturing something that's very different than reality. He's picturing someone who is going to be a victorious warrior. He's picturing someone who is going to lead the Jews in a revolt against the Romans who were ruling over them at the time. Someone who is going to be a victorious and a divine warrior who's going to give salvation to the Jews. Once again, they'll have the opportunity to rule themselves. As you keep reading, just skipping down a couple verses to Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus, I think, begins to correct some of their misconceptions about what it means for Him to be the Christ. When you look at Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, it is at this point that Jesus began to teach them about the path that He's going to walk down. About the direction that He's going to go. It's a path that's defined by four things. First, He said, the Son of Man must Literally, that word means it is necessary. This isn't something that's optional. The Son of Man must suffer many things. Number two, be rejected by the, the Jewish religious leaders, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, the three groups that made up the Sanhedrin. Number three, he's going to be killed. And after three days, number four, he is going to rise again. When you look at those four things, especially the first three in Mark chapter 8 and verse 31, those would have been so contradictory to how his disciples would have viewed him as the Christ. As Peter confessed him to be the Christ, he was confessing one who was going to cause the Romans to suffer, not one who's going to suffer himself. Peter confessed Jesus as one who is going to lead the Jewish religious leaders against the Romans, not one who is going to be rejected by the Jewish religious leaders. He thinks about Jesus as someone who is going to kill, not someone who is going to be killed. 
But Jesus corrects that vision. Jesus begins to correct that misunderstanding. We're going to see him say similar things as we continue throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says, this is the kind of path that I'm going to go down. This is the direction that I'm going. It's a path that's defined by suffering and rejection and trial and tribulation. It's a path that's ultimately going to lead to death, but not end with death. Because the resurrection is going to take place three days later. So as we bring that context into Mark chapter 8 and verse 34, let's put two and two together. Jesus invites us to come after Him. We see in verse 31 that He's going down a very difficult path. A path of suffering and rejection. If we're going to follow after Jesus, what does that mean for us? If we're going to come after Him in the direction that He's going and the path that He's traveling, what does that mean for us? It's the first point up on the screen, isn't it? Sometimes discipleship is going to be difficult. Sometimes discipleship is going to be challenging. I think that so many people get this false idea that discipleship is easy. Once I become a follower of Jesus, all of my problems are going to be taken care of. And I'm never going to suffer again. In fact, I heard somebody say that just last week. That was the expectation that he had. Whenever I become a disciple of Jesus and I live as a disciple of Jesus, of Jesus, it's all going to be rainbows and butterflies from there on out. Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you're going to walk down a difficult path. If you're going to come after me, you're going to walk down a path that's not always defined by happiness and joy. Sometimes it's going to be defined by difficulty and trial. And, and so to note that, number one, from chapter 8 and verse 34, being a disciple of Jesus is not always an easy thing to do, and we shouldn't expect it to be an easy thing to do. Number two, being a disciple of Jesus means that we're going to have to deny ourselves sometimes. As 21st century Americans, we want what we want, and we want it right then, right? You ever find yourself with that kind of mentality? It's kind of like the famous slogan from Burger King, have it your way. We want to have it our way, don't we? Almost all the time. We want what we want, and we want it right then. Jesus says, if you're going to be my disciple, then sometimes you're going to have to say no. He says, if you're going to be my disciple, there are going to be some things that you want. There are going to be some things that you desire, but you're going to have to deny yourself of those things because they're going to impact my relationship with you. Because they're going to come in the way of my relationship with you. They can ultimately end up being prioritized over my relationship with you. Being a disciple of Jesus doesn't just walk down a difficult path, but maybe something that contributes to that difficulty is learning to say no. This is something that I want. This is something that's attractive to me. Sin, by its definition, is going to be attractive. If it wasn't attractive to us, we wouldn't want it. And Jesus says when you're confronted with those kinds of situations, if you're going to be my disciple, you're going to have to learn to say no to those things. You're going to have to learn to deny yourself of those things that tempt you the most. Number three, being a disciple of Jesus means that we have to take up our crosses according to chapter 8 and verse 34. Think about how people view the cross today. The cross is a precious symbol, isn't it? And it should be to us as followers of Jesus. It's a symbol that imparts love and grace and forgiveness and reconciliation. That's why you oftentimes find a cross on jewelry or on clothing or in decorations throughout the house. Do you think that people in the first century viewed the cross that way? 
Do you think they viewed the cross as something that was precious? Do you think they have it hanging up on their wall or hanging on a piece of jewelry around their neck? They didn't. Back in the first century, when they thought about the cross, what was the first thought that came into their mind? When you were going to be crucified, when you were going to be executed, you had to take up the longer piece of the cross and carry it on your shoulders. We find the Gospels talking about Jesus having to bear His own cross as He went to Calvary. When they pictured the cross, the first thought that came into their mind was death. Execution. Taking up your cross meant that you were going to die. You were on your way to be executed. So what does Jesus mean when He says that we need to deny ourselves and we need to take up our crosses? Perhaps what Jesus is telling us there is that we need to have such a dedication to Him that we'd be willing to die for Him. That we need to have such a dedication to Jesus that we would be willing to give our lives to Him. That all the time we're carrying around our crosses. Those second and third points, I think the order of those things is really important to get. To deny yourself first and then to take up your cross second. Because you can't pick up your cross if you have other things in your hands. In order to pick up your cross, you have to lay down what you're holding on to. You have to deny yourself and then you're able to take up that cross and be dedicated to Jesus. Is this something that we do just when we feel like it? Well, no, you go to Luke's account of this in Luke chapter 9 and verse 23. And Jesus says that we are to take up our cross when? Daily. This is something that happens every single day. Now, some some days the cross is going to seem heavier than other days. Some days the cross is going to seem lighter than other days. But it's something that we are called to do on a continual and a consistent basis to deny ourselves and to take up our cross every single day that we live. Number four, being a disciple of Jesus means that we're going to follow after Jesus. That fourth point there, that's the natural result of everything we've been talking about so far. I recognize that discipleship is difficult and I'm going to follow Jesus down a path of hardship and difficulty. I'm going to deny myself and say no to things that are sinful. I'm going to take up my cross and have a strong dedication to Jesus that would even lead me to death. Jesus says, then you're ready to follow me. Then you're ready to go in the direction that I'm going. To do what I do. To say what I say. To think how I think. To walk in my footsteps, if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, then we have to dedicate ourselves to following after Him. Number five, being a disciple of Jesus means that we are going to lose our lives, He says in verse 35. Verse 35, what Jesus says there is a paradox. It's a paradoxical statement. A statement that really doesn't make sense. It seems to be contradictory on the surface. It's a statement like, the more you give, then the more you get. How in the world does that make sense? How do you get more by giving more? Because when you give, you're getting rid of stuff. You're not getting stuff. It's a statement like that one where Jesus says, in this is verse number 35 of Mark chapter 8, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the Gospels will save it. There are two possible meanings there for what Jesus is referring to. I think that both of them could be appropriate first. Jesus could be talking about martyrdom, especially in the context of taking up 
our crosses. Jesus says if you face a situation where it comes to making a decision between denying me and continuing to live or confessing me and dying, he says if you look to save your physical life, you're going to lose your spiritual life. But if you lose your physical life, then your spiritual life is going to be saved. Think about Jesus' disciples, who He's talking to, the twelve. History and tradition tells us that every single one of them died of martyrdom except for one, and that's the Apostle John. Or this could have a more general meaning. I like what a commentator named Sweet has to say about this. Wouldn't that be a nice name to have, Sweet? The man whose aim in life is to secure personal safety and success loses the higher life of which he is capable and which is gained by those who sacrifice themselves in the service of Christ. It's about the aim of my life. It's about the priority of my life. Am I seeking after personal safety and success or am I seeking after Jesus and losing myself in Him? Am I finding success and safety in the world or am I looking for spiritual satisfaction in the Lord and in his service when we lose our lives in Jesus they will be saved in eternity number six being a disciple of Jesus means that we recognize the value of our souls you see that in verses 36 and 37 which if you step back into 35 for just a second when he says whoever would save his life or whoever loses his life that word for life is the same word for soul and so Jesus has been talking to us about here's what happens when you look to save your life. But then here's what happens when you look to lose your life or to lose your soul. Now, let me talk to you about the value of that life, the value of that soul. He asked a powerful question. What does it profit? What do you gain? What do you receive? Jesus asked. If a man gained the whole world. And forfeit his soul. What do you gain? What do you get? What profit do you receive if you gain all that the world has to offer? If you gain all the riches and all the power and all the authority and all the popularity that the world has to offer, but you lose your soul in that endeavor, what's the answer that Jesus is anticipating? You really don't gain anything. If you gain everything the world has to offer, if you're the ruler of the world, the richest person on the planet, but you lose your soul in that process, Jesus says you end up with nothing. The next question comes in verse number 37. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his life? I don't know about you, but whenever I was in elementary school, we would make all kinds of trades with each other like I'll trade you this football card if you trade me that baseball card I'll trade you this pink eraser for that blue eraser and we make all kinds of different trades what kind of trade can you make for your soul what can you trade in equal value of your soul and again the answer that Jesus is wanting us to get the answer that he's wanting us to arrive at is nothing there's nothing that's worth more than your soul. There's nothing that is equal in worth to your soul. Your soul is the most important thing that you have, Jesus says. And you have to recognize the value of it. You know what's so sad about this? There are so many people in the world who are trading their souls, not for the entire world, but for just a sliver of it. Just a portion of it. Trading their eternal soul for just a little sliver of fame, popularity, riches, authority, power, 
whatever it might be. As disciples of Jesus, our priorities are right. As disciples of Jesus, we recognize what's most important in life, and that is our eternal souls. Number seven, being a disciple of Jesus means that we're going to be and live unashamed of Jesus and his words. Perhaps the words of verse 38 should really make us stop in our tracks and think. Perhaps they should make us reflect on how we're choosing to live. Are we living ashamed of Jesus? Are we living ashamed of Jesus's teachings? Can we stand alongside of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter one and verse 16 when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Is that something that we can say? And even more importantly, is that the way that we live? I'm not ashamed of the good news. I'm not ashamed of Jesus because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. What about Second Timothy one and verse eight? Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Are we willing to do that? To not be ashamed of Jesus or the testimony about him, but instead be willing to suffer for him. We've already seen that in this text so far. Are we willing to stand unashamed, even if it brings suffering into our lives? Disciples are going to be unashamed of Jesus and the words that he has spoken. Because there's a high price to pay when we live our lives ashamed of Jesus. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. One day Jesus is going to come back. One day Jesus is going to return. And whenever that happens, every single one of us are going to stand before him. If we have lived our lives ashamed of Jesus and his teaching, when we stand before him on that final day of judgment, he is going to be ashamed of us. Disciples are not ashamed of Jesus and his words. It's brief, but it's powerful. Jesus teaches us how we can live and how we can be his disciples, followers of His, students of His, those who sit at His feet and listen to His teaching, those who take that teaching and apply it to their lives so that they can better imitate Him on a daily basis. Here's what that looks like. Number one, I recognize that this is going to be difficult. And this isn't always going to be easy. And then as a disciple, I deny myself, I take up my cross, I follow Jesus in His footsteps, I lose my life in Him, I realize the value of my eternal soul and I don't trade it for anything. And I lived unashamed of Him and His teaching. The life of a follower, a disciple, a student, a pupil of the master teacher, Jesus Christ. It's amazing that Jesus gives us that opportunity, isn't it? Back in the first century, the discipleship process was a very selective process. It's amazing that Jesus opens this up to us. Jesus opens it up to you and to me to be his disciples. He tells us how to do it. You go to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Jesus says that, tells his apostles to go and make disciples of all nations. How do you do it? You know where discipleship begins? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Maybe that's a commitment you need to make tonight. Maybe you need to make the decision to become a disciple of Jesus by being baptized in the name of Jesus, by the authority of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd love to help you with that decision tonight. Or maybe as you read through this text, you recognize 
I've taken that step in faith, but that's not who I am. And that's not the way that I'm living. I really have some things to work on. Let's work on those things together. Allow us to help you. Allow us to encourage you. Allow us to pray for you. As together we stand and Seth leads us in our invitation song.